It's something for nothing. The Rush fan cast. Steve with you along with a horse, Jerry. Hey, Jer. Hi, Steve. How are you? And by horse, I don't mean you're an animal. <laughs> it's true. I'm horse because I went to see the Foo Fighters uh, this past Sunday, which was June 20th. Wow. And I kind of screamed my throat off. And how was it? It was fantastic. It was absolutely fantastic. My voice, I think, is proof of that because I was just screaming, <laughs> screaming along with Dave at the top of my lungs. Well, lucky there's one of us who can speak. You can find us on Twitter, at RushFanCast. Instagram, we are at TheRushCast. Email Jerry, TheRushCast at gmail.com. Lex did the bass intro and outro. Follow us on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review if you like. We enjoy that. So to relieve you of a little bit of your voice, I've got a Twitter poll for you, Jer. Okay. Today's is about Power Windows. We talked about Power Windows not too long ago. I remember. And when we talked about the first four songs, I released a Twitter poll asking the Rush fans their favorite of the first four songs on the album. They are mm. The Big Money, Grand Designs, Manhattan Project, and Marathon. What did the Rush family, as we call them, say? Well, did you go back to our original episodes and try to find out what people said back then? I'm sure you asked that question. I did not. I want to know what Rush fans are thinking now. You want to take the pulse the pulse now. Not two years ago. This is what Rush fans feel right now. Okay. Um, I'm going to say Manhattan Project. Incorrect. Really? I was surprised as well. Another guess, possibly? Big money. Wrong again. Also wrong? Also wrong. <laughs> Marathon won by Marathon. quite a bit. 39% wow. said Marathon. That is surprising for some reason. I don't know why. 25% said Manhattan Project, Big Money, 21%, and Grand Designs, not surprisingly, as much as I love that song, came in fourth at 14%. Hmm. So we'll update you next time on side two of Power Windows. But until then, I hope you have a good email for us, Jer. I do. This is uh, from Alton. He's from Frisco, Texas. Ooh, Frisco. Hey, Alton. Do you know Frisco, Texas? Uh, no, I don't. Neither do I. <laughs> Uh, he says, Hey guys, I've been listening to your podcast for about two months now, and I really love the show. For a long time, I've been on the fence as a Rush fan. I just have a couple of the live albums. The first episode I heard was the one with Eddie Trunk, and I like the way you guys talk so much about the band and the music. I went back and started with episode one when you discussed Power Windows. Shortly after that, I found Chronicles at a used bookstore. I'm familiar with the radio hits, so thanks to YouTube Music, I decided to jump the fence and started listening to Rush from the first record to hear the deep cuts. Then I go to Amazon to buy the albums or the songs that are not on Chronicles. As of this email, I'm up to moving pictures, and I listened to the four-episode podcast you did on that album. For the past couple of months, I've been listening to nothing but Rush, adding songs to my playlist each time for the combination of studio and live albums. Because of your podcast, I have a new appreciation for Rush, and now I can say that I am a real Rush fan. Thank you so much. Nice. That is awesome. That's every Rush fan's dream, right? Is to corner somebody and talk them into liking Rush. It's every Rush fan's dream to be a real Rush fan, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Like <laughs> Pinocchio. Get to be a real boy. You know, it's funny. We were talking about territories not too long ago, and I was thinking about it. Yes. That Neil would not be happy with the characterization of real Rush fans versus not real Rush fans. It's sort of 
like defining a territory as well, right? Yeah, I would imagine that all three of them are just not into the whole idea of, of real Rush fans versus fake Rush fans. I'm sure they're happy with anybody who likes any of their music, even if they only like one song. Right, who wouldn't be? Just makes sense. So today on the Rush Fancast, Jerry, we have a real Rush fan in our midst. <laughs> That's right. We do. Author of more than 170 books, including 58 bestsellers, his novels Clockwork Angels and Clockwork Lives were written with Neil Peart, and his book Drum Beats was also written with Neil and re-released in 2020. And his third novel in the Clockwork Angels trilogy, Clockwork Destiny, will be released soon. We're happy to welcome Kevin J. Anderson to the Rush Fan Cast. Hi, Kevin. Welcome. Hey, guys. Good to uh, see you and other... Well, I can see you. Everybody else is listening, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> so they have to just imagine how utterly handsome we all are and how we're all grinning <laughs> and stuff like that. That's what I keep saying. But uh, every Well, we all know that Rush fans are just like the most stunning physical specimens in the, on the planet. So we're, we're all here, right? Always happy to talk to other Rush fans. And, you know, I'm, I'm just going to start out with, with a story that really kind of nails it, that it was, I think it was the Clockwork Angels tour that we were standing uh, in. And because we're friends of Neil's, we always, he always makes sure that we get really good seats kind of up in front center, or 10 rows back or something like that. And they were playing bravado. And that everybody's standing up and they're there. And I'm, I look to this guy on my left, just total stranger. This is the guy in the seat to my left and they're playing bravado. And I look over at him and he's just got tears pouring down his face. And I looked at that and I thought rush fans get this. Right. And that, that just something, because every time I hear that song, it just nails it for me. And and the garden and uh, mission. And, you know, there's just so many of these and available light is just one of mine that just like hits me every time. And there's just, if you can hear it, you can hear it. And I feel sorry for the people that don't hear it the same way that we do. We like to go back to the beginning with our guest, Kevin. Why don't you tell us what your Rush origin story is? When did you first hear Rush and how did you become a fan? Well, this is, I, I lived in this really tiny town in Wisconsin called Oregon, Wisconsin, which is sort of like two taverns and a Methodist church. And, and it's, we had, we had no library. We hadn't, well, actually we did have a library, but there's certainly no record store or anything. And when, uh, when I was in, I don't know, I think like a sophomore in high school, that's when you sort of get awakened to listening to music that, I mean, I had my radio in the top 40 and stuff and my, my parents, they were big country Western fans. So I learned to really hate country Western music. And uh, they, they let me listen to the beach boys because that was, you know, acceptable rock and roll music. And, um, but we didn't have a record store, but we had this thing called the Columbia record club. And for those of you old enough, uh, I mean, we used to get these fly, these junk mail packets in the mail, you join the Columbia record club and get 12 albums for a dollar. And then you had to buy whatever, five albums over mm -hmm. the course of the next year or something like that. And what they gave you when you open up this, this flyer is there was this sheet or two sheets of like, they were like little postage stamps and each postage yeah. stamp had an album cover on it. And I was at this point, I couldn't go to a record store because we didn't have any. So I had to sign up for the Columbia Record Club. And there were maybe like three albums that I even knew of that I wanted to buy or I wanted to get but I had 12 albums for a dollar. So I'm peeling off, peeled off the three stamps that I, I knew I wanted. And I didn't even remember today what those were, 
But then I'm looking, I got to fill up nine more albums. What do I do with this? And I'm a science fiction geek. And I was reading The Hobbit and Dune and Lord of the Rings and all this stuff. And I'm looking down this sheet and there's like the Alan Parsons project, iRobot. I went, ooh, that sounds kind of science fiction. Let's put that one on there. And then Alan Parsons, I think they had pyramids. So I went, that sounds kind of cool. I'd do this. And, you know, who this, what, 2112, that looks kind of science fiction-y. I've never heard of this Rush group, whatever, but it looked cool. And I had 12 albums for a dollar. So I put that down and then, oh, A Farewell to Kings. That looks kind of fun. And I put that down and I think Fly By Night was another one. This was before Hemispheres because Hemispheres was the one that I intentionally went out and got. So just got, I did had no idea what this stuff was. And then when all this album, all these albums come in and I'm starting to play it. And remember, I was looking for music that would annoy my parents. And when you hear Getty's shrieking, wailing voices <laughs> and Alex guitars and all this stuff, and oh boy, is that stuff that'll annoy your parents. Uh, you know, the end of Cygnus X1 when he sucked down into the gravity <laughs> gravity hole. And it's just like, oh man, that's, that's really going to get them banging on my doors. And 2112, this science fiction story, dystopian. And, and I'm like, this is really cool stuff because I was this skinny nerd with glasses and hand-me-down clothes and a bad haircut. And, you know, all these songs about, oh, baby, baby, my girlfriend left me. None of that meant anything to me because I wasn't going to get a girlfriend anytime soon. <laughs> and so I was much more interested in songs about, uh, you know, expeditions to a black hole or, or the immortal man and Xanadu and all this stuff that really, really kind of turned me on. So I, that's how I got, and I was probably 12 at the time, 13, something like that. And I just became a diehard Rush fan and I listened to all of that. And then I'm going to fast forward. So I kept, I kept, I wanted to be a writer. So I kept writing short stories. And, and in fact, I think a couple of my short stories uh, were inspired by Rush songs. But by the time I, I graduated from college and I'm, I'm publishing my short stories and I, I got to the point where it's time to write my own first novel. And I had this really cool idea for a novel um, about like this in a future where instead of building androids to do all the dirty grunt work, that they have this technology that just jumpstarts human bodies, kind of like high-tech zombies. And they turn them into servants to dig ditches and handle toxic waste and all this stuff. And I got this idea for a story about this this guy who's he's murdered on page one. It's, he's, his body is found and then they jumpstart him and he becomes a servant and he unwittingly is assigned to work for the guy who murdered him. And he starts getting flashbacks of his, of his previous life. And as I'm plotting this story, that's exactly the time when Rush released Grace Under Pressure. And as I'm listening to Grace Under Pressure over and over and over again, it seemed to me that all of those songs were like exactly scenes from this novel, the the uh, um, after image song and the enemy within and distant early warning and, and the body electric, all these are just like, wow, this is like the soundtrack for my novel, but wait, let me do it the other way around. I got to make sure that there's a chapter in the novel for every song that's on this album. I mean, nobody but me would ever get this stuff, but I knew it was <laughs> in there. So I wrote it all. And then I, I sold the novel to uh signet book. So it was a paperback book. And when it was, was published, I put in the dedication page that I wanted to acknowledge the genius of, of uh, Neil Peart, Getty Lee, and Alex Lifeson from Rush, whose haunting album, Grace Under Pressure, inspired much of this novel. And when the, the book was published, 
I got three extra copies of it and I autographed one to each of the three guys and I packaged it up and mailed it off to Mercury Records where it promptly went into like the warehouse where the Ark of the Covenant is stored. You know, (laughs) I never really expected to hear anything back. But about two years later, I came home after a really, really rotten day at work. I had a whole bunch of things that went wrong and I was just really kind of ticked off at everything. And I get home and I open up the mailbox and there's like some bills and some Safeway flyers and this letter with a Canadian stamp on it with a return address that said N Peart. And it just like my whole day changed. Well, my whole life, literally my life changed on that day. And it was Neil writing me this, I think it was a three or four page letter, single spaced about how much he loved my novel Resurrection Inc. And then he put in tiny letters at the end. He specifically reduced the font at the end to say, if you would like to continue a correspondence, I'd be happy to hear from you. Wow. And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> okay. And so we, we started corresponding and, and I was his friend for 32 years, I think, before he died. So that's how long it was. Now, why was it in smaller type? Do you have any idea? <laughs> It was almost like he was kind of whispering or shy or something like that, that it wasn't like my demand that you write back to me. It was kind of like this, you know, if you want to write back, I'd be happy to hear from you. (laughs) And of course you wrote back. Neil was a pretty quiet guy. I mean, he was very, he was very focused on his own stuff and on his own interests. And, and uh, you know, he didn't, he didn't go out to get people like bowing down in front of him or cheering that he just wanted to, do his own stuff and talk about things that interested him. And, and uh, so, yes, of course I wrote back and then he came in and he, I've been backstage at every rush concert tour since a show of hands. That was my first one. And um, he's stayed at our house a bunch of times. And, and it was just like, we were friends. We, we wrote stuff together and we corresponded all the time. And uh, we took him to Yosemite for the first time. He had traveled all over the place, but he'd never been to Yosemite. So we took him out there and just a great friend. And and he would write, this was back when we actually wrote letters, right? So he would write these seven page single space letters. And and he once got all kind of indignant because I told him he was going on at purity and lengths. <laughs> and and uh, he just, he, but it's intimidating because you read these letters and go, man, how can I not sound like a dummy re- responding to something like this? Cause he was a pretty smart guy. So how did those first letters with Neil evolve into you working on the drum beats project with Neil? How did that come about? Well, Neil would write all these letters. And he had just come back from one of his bicycling trips in Africa. And he was writing and describing all these things about his Africa trip, which uh, he originally wrote into a book called The African Drum, which he he only printed like 100 copies of that for his close friends. And that was all of his descriptions about the African landscape and these weird villages he went to and the people he met and the, the scenery. And and at that time, and I, I was a published writer by then. I had a bunch of short stories published. Not, well, obviously, I'd published the first novel because that's how I got to know him. And I got asked to write a story for this anthology of rock and roll themed uh, horror dark fantasy stories. It was called Shock Rock. And the editor asked if I would write a story for that. And I had this really cool idea, creepy Twilight Zone story of like a, a rock drummer bicycling through Africa. And he gets to this very, very strange and mysterious village where 
uh, they, they make the best drums, but the way they make the best drums is that they cover them with human skin. And so, you know, cue the Twilight Zone music and all mm -hmm. that stuff. And I had this great idea for it. And I wrote to Neil, I said, would you mind if I took like all kinds of your descriptions of this stuff and work them into the story? Because I've never been to these African villages. Mm -hmm. And so I just went through his African drum book and I, I pulled all kinds of the, the writing out of it and I slapped it into the, the fiction part of the story. And then I sent it to Neil and he re reworked it and he loved it and sent it back. And, uh, and so I wrote to the editor of Shock Rock and I said, would you mind if I did a co-authored story with, with Neil Peart, the drummer from Rush? And, and uh, no, he didn't mind at all. So, <laughs> so that was where, where that was published. And we had put it up as an ebook story for a long time. And I, it was reprinted in a couple of other uh, anthologies. But we'd always wanted to do a really nice, fine edition of it. And, you know, it was one of those things where really learned a lot about life and really learned a lot of lessons where we had always meant to do it because there was all the time in the world, but then there wasn't any time. And after Neil passed away, I basically, can I say fuck it on your show? I, I finally just said, you just did. Fuck it. I, I, I finally, we're, we're going to do this. And I got a brilliant Canadian artist, Steve Otis, who did the, uh, the cover painting. He did a bunch of black and white interior illustrations. Um, I wrote, a, a big, long, heartfelt introduction about uh, what the story meant to me and what Neil meant to me. And, and Neil had written his own afterward when we put up the ebook. So there was this big, long afterward that Neil wrote about drum beats that has never been printed anywhere. And then finally, after uh, Neil's passing, we just, it was one of those swift kicks that we said, we've got to do this. And so we put together this fine, beautiful, illustrated edition of, of drum beats. And, and that's out now. We've got it. Uh, we could do signed copies, uh, me, signed copies by me, obviously. And it's, uh, I've got a store site, Wordfire Shop. Uh, you put it up there somewhere, wordfireshop.com. And, and that's where we got some. Or you can get it on Amazon or wherever you want to. But very proud of that story. And it's just like this neat, creepy, self-contained, uh, a lot of, Neil's own experiences fictionalized in there and, and it turned out great. And I'm very proud that I, I did it. And we kind of, for all of you listeners, we are showing the cover right now about how <laughs> anyway, that's, I, I got to get through this interview without uh, like choking up. So I, I throw some more questions so I don't have to keep going on and on here. Well, after that, it was a, a quite a number of years before you started working on clockwork angels, how did that come about where it was like, now's the right time to work on something else? Because I'm assuming that over the years, you had thought about working together again. Oh, we had quite a few times. We had tried to come up with like him doing, writing some songs and me writing the fiction to them or tying it, tying it together. And then I wrote like some books. I said, hey, can we tie this and write some songs about this book that I'm writing? We put it out together. But see, I published 170 books and, and Rush isn't quite as prolific as I was. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I would write 10 books before another Rush album would come out. And we, we just kept talking and trying to come up with the, the right thing. But, you know, like I said, you always felt like there's all the time in the world. And I had written some of the very first steampunk novels ever. I, it's a trilogy of kind of this, this gaming universe that it's been reissued. It's called Hex World. 
uh, about it's it's a role playing game, but inside there's like Jules Verne as a character and Doctor Frankenstein who builds a steampunk atomic bomb and and Neil really loved those and he loved the whole aesthetic of steampunk. And I wrote another book called Captain Nemo, which is the life story of of Captain Nemo and how he built the Nautilus. And and Neil was just really interested in stuff like that. And when he started to come up with his concept for Clockwork Angels, he was just writing me all these letters about to explain this about steampunk and and recommended reading for him and I sent him some other novels to read and because he's developing this story and he's telling me the story of Clockwork Angels and I'm just geeking out because I'm a Rush fan and I'm like cool I'm getting to advise him on these songs <laughs> here someday and and he's writing the songs and I think they had just recorded remember they released the two tracks uh, Caravan and BU2B as as a separate uh, CD before that's what they did the Time Machine tour on. So he's got those two tracks done and they're recording things and, and he's writing other stuff. And my wife and I met him for lunch at a, at a cafe in Santa Monica in, I, I had the exact date, I think 2011, 2010, something like that. And he's just all exuberant about Clockwork Angels, that this is the, the best thing he's done in a long time, that, that it's not just going to be an album, it's going to be, it's going to be a novel, and it's going to be a Broadway musical, and it's going to be Ice Follies, and, and I'm you know, <laughs> fanboy, so I'm like, cool, Ice Follies, I'm all excited about it. And my wife is sitting next to us, and, and she's also a New York Times bestselling author, and, and you know, she's known Neil for 15 years, too. And, and she like kind of perks up and says, a novel, excuse me, Neil, who's going to write the novel? And, and Neil just goes, well, Kevin is, of course. And then he goes on about his <laughs> and things. And so that's how we see Clockwork Angels has this really intricate story behind it. Neil had a lot of it in his head. And he had the anarchist and the watchmaker and the wreckers and the seven cities of gold and and this young man uh, kind of on this this um, coming of age story going through this really cool steampunk world and uh, and his his crux of it his original image was this the steampunk carnival and this innocent kid who kind of finds a bomb that the anarchist plants and then people find him who has found the bomb and then he gets framed for it and he has to run away. And that was like Neil's central thing that he was thinking of. And we kind of built the plot around that. So we had some of it done. And then when they came to Denver to play the, they did two nights for their time machine tour. They, it was two nights with a day off in between. And when you have a day off in between, well, what are you going to do? So I took Neil and we climbed a 14,000 foot mountain peak. (laughs) Of course. Well, that's what Neil does, and uh, that's what I like to do. And so we're climbing this mountain, and we're we're up at you know rare air and thirteen thousand feet, and keep climbing. And that's where we brainstormed the real details of all the stories and the uh, in Clockwork Angels, and then the backstory of the anarchist and the watchmaker, and it just kind of kept spiraling out farther and farther and farther. And it just when the book came out, well, oh, there's another step. So. Now I'm writing the novel of this upcoming Rush album. And I myself, you, you did my credits. I mean, I've got you know, dozens and dozens of bestsellers and I've got 23 million copies of my books in print and 32 languages. And Neil is Neil. He's the drummer for Rush with more platinum albums than any other group in music history. And they're one of the bestselling uh, performing acts of all time. And, and you know, I don't have to tell you guys this, you know, all their mm-hmm. credits. And so I go to my agent, I go to my publishers and say, guys, I'm doing the the novel with Neil of the new Rush album. And 
they just kind of gave me blank stares that I, I literally was told, um, how do you make a novel out of an album? And do Rush fans <laughs> even read? And, and so we couldn't publish it. We couldn't get it to any of my major publishers. And so we went to a Canadian publisher, ECW Press, that, uh, that Neil had published some of his like traveling music and, and Ghost Rider and stuff with. And they jumped at the chance. And Hugh Syme did the paintings on the inside. Hugh Syme did the cover, which is based on the album cover. And ECW Press, Canadian publisher, they released it. And it showed up on the New York Times bestseller list the first week out. And was the first bestseller that Neil ever had. It was the first bestseller that ECW Press ever had. And uh, got nominated for some awards. And I mean, I know every single one of your listeners has read the novel, of course. But, of course. Uh, but, if you, but if you don't want to actually read words on a page, there's an even cooler step to it that if you get the audiobook, Neil himself reads the audiobook because he loved the book so much. He wanted to be the narrator. And this is when they were prepping for their, I don't, I don't remember which, two, well, maybe it was just the Clockwork Angels tour because the, the album or the novel came out um, when they were already going on tour, it didn't come out when the album came out. And so Neil wanted to block out the time to do the audiobook narration himself because he didn't want anybody else to do it. And he went into the studio and he just blew everybody away because he did the entire novel in like three or four days, which is like unheard of. Professional narrators take take weeks and all kinds of cuts, but Neil didn't have weeks. So he did it all in three days. And, and I just... I just re-listened to the whole thing uh, because I just wrote the third book in the trilogy, Clockwork Destiny, and I, I needed to get up to speed again. And, and it was it was really hard to listen to it, but it was also really it got to the point where instead of being grieving, it was it was cathartic and uplifting. And it was just great to hear him read those words and hear his enthusiasm for the characters and and the music. And, you know, it just I, I'm so proud of that that novel, and even more the second one, Clockwork Lives, which won won the Colorado Book Award. And Neil wrote me after he read that one. He said that that was my finest work. Wow! So that must be fantastic to hear that coming from your childhood idol and friend for over thirty years. I mean, yep. just, just incredible. Well, and then it raised a hell of a bar. So when I do the third one, how could I possibly top something like that? But it's good to be pushed to your limits. And and just to explain, so Clockwork Lives is is a companion book. It's not it's not really a sequel. It's like another story in the same universe where a bunch of the characters cross over. And then Clockwork Destiny, the third one, kind of ties everything together. And that's a story that Neil and I plotted uh, during his last years. And he knew I was going to write it without him. And we talked about that and got all the stuff done. And I I had to, I had all the notes and I, I knew I had to get around to writing this book, but I had to just shelve them for a full year uh, after he passed away. I just couldn't look at him and finally came out. And it, when I finally started writing Clockwork Destiny, it just, it just poured out of me. I, I wrote the entire draft of the novel in three weeks and just like nonstop going out. And it just came out of me and I, I, I don't have enough perspective to compare it yet, but I, I think it's pretty darn good. We'll be on again when, when that one comes out next April or so. So I won't, I won't yeah. give away anything right now. So Kevin, would you say that Owen Hardy's story in Clockwork Angels parallels Neil's life in a lot of ways? Sure. I mean, I think of Neil 
heading off to London when he was a teenager and seeing Owen Hardy leave his small town and go to the big city. It's a similar arc, right? Well, that, and it's, it parallels a lot of my stuff too. I grew up in a little tiny town and I really wanted to break free and get up because I wanted to be a writer. And, and I'm in this little tiny Wisconsin town and I was the only person I knew who even read The Hobbit. Like you can't talk to anybody about Star Trek or about Star Wars or the movies or, or books and stuff. And, and so I really felt a lot of that. But there is a lot with Neil too. In fact, there's a section in Clockwork Angels where Owen, Owen Hardy, which is the initials for our hero, because we didn't even have a name for him for, for most of the project. He was just, our hero does this and our hero does that. There's a scene where he goes to Poseidon City, which is kind of like London, I guess. Mm-hmm. And he falls in with this guy called Guerrero and he's kind of a scoundrel and he doesn't mind breaking into houses and taking what they need. And this was really based on somebody that Neil fell in with when he was over one of his first days over in London. And he really wanted to do that part of the book. And he really, that character was his and he's describing everything. And uh, I, I learned to laugh. I learned to fight. I learned how to steal. Those are lines from Headlong Flight. That's the stuff from that part of the book. And so there's there's a lot of things from our our respective upbringings. But remember, Neil was was he working in like a farm equipment place and mm-hmm. somewhere in in Ontario. And when you come from a little, I mean, little in many respects, a little place like a tiny small town, there are you know, middle town dreams, there are small minds and you don't have the experiences. And some people are perfectly content with that. And other people, they want more. In fact, I'm, because you can't see what I'm doing, I'm, I'm going to be turning pages because I, I want to quote this correctly, because the very first line of the Park Angels novel is, the best place to start an adventure is with a quiet, perfect life and someone who realizes that it can't possibly be enough. And that's just like the the cornerstone of it, that you've got this guy who can't stop thinking big and uh, nobody else around him understands that he wants to, he, he doesn't want to be famous. He doesn't want to be rich. He just wants to experience life and see things and and know what's out there. And it really frustrates him that other people don't have the same curiosity that he does. And that's me and that's Neil. And that's, I mean, Neil was just this sponge. He wanted to understand everything and learn how to do everything and see everything and go wherever he needed to go. And all the rest of life was just sort of a catalyst to getting the rest of those things to happen. Now, Gaddy had said once that uh, working with Neil as a collaborator was just that he, that Neil was just such a generous collaborator that he wasn't too precious about his own words or his own ideas that he would always take feedback in different ways. Right. Is that what you found working with him too? Well, and you know, I, I've known Neil for so long and, and the drum beats project was, was a little bit different because I was taking words he'd already written and just kind of integrating them into an overall story. And then when he asked me to write the clockwork angels book, I was just like, so excited. And then after, after I agreed and we were going to start to work on it, then I started to think about Neil and I thought, oh my gosh, this could be the most terrible thing ever because he is, how could I ever possibly be good enough to work with Neil Peart? <laughs> and and what is, is he going to be like OCD and complaining about every comma and every word? And I, I suddenly got really scared because I mean, we were really good friends. I didn't want to ruin my friendship. And 
what would it be like to work? Because this is Neil's story and this is really intimate stuff. And it turned out he was just wonderful. He was, I mean, I, I would write the first draft and send it to him and he would within hours read the chapters and come back with, with comments. And there was, I mean, he would like make suggestions about adding something or changing some words, but he never got to the point where he was being you know, critical or, or hard on me at all. It was just this incredibly smooth and, and generous interactive process. And part of it was that I had in my mind, this guy with a, like a lion tamer with a whip, just trying to do the Kevin, you got to do better than you've ever done anything like this ever before, because it's got Neil's name on the cover too. And, you know, when it's just, when it's my own book and I'm working on something, I'm the only one that I have to impress. And in this case, I had to impress one of the guys I respected most in the entire world. So that adds, it's just a little bit of pressure. Now, Jerry and I were talking before we started this conversation with you about how we loved how you weaved Rush's lyrics and song titles into the story. Can you tell us about that? Was that your idea, Neil's idea? That was all my idea because Rush, I mean, Neil himself is not at all a fanboy. So he would not even think of something like that. But throughout the text, whenever I could put, if Owen's lost, he's finding his way to, or finding my way to do something. And and uh, when the steamliner takes off after dark, he's flying by night. And all these little, I mean, those are some pretty obvious ones, but but there's a lot of really, really subtle things throughout because this is the soundtrack of my life. I know every one of those lyrics, they're just like integrated into my DNA. So at any point where it felt like I could use a rush phrase instead of a normal phrase, I'd put it in, but my intention was to make them subtle enough that if you were not a Rush Uber geek, you would not even notice them. But if you were a Rush Uber geek, you would go, ah, I see what you did there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah And in the afterword to uh, Clockwork Angels, Neil writes um, that perhaps one day we'll have a contest to see how many of them people can find. So I'm curious if you know how many there are and whether or not there can actually... No idea, right? I, I put them in wherever they be- wherever they belonged and, and, and wherever they were smooth. In fact, when I'm I'm editing Clockwork Destiny now, and I I found a couple of them that just felt too obtrusive. They were like too much in your face. Like ah, I, I found a way to put a rush lyric in, and and I deleted those just because I don't. I that's going to jar you out of the story, and that's the worst right. sin that a writer can do is to make you stop reading. And some of those were just it was just too much, and I cut them back. But I think that the ones that stayed in there are. I mean, if, if you're a real Rush fan, you'll, you'll spot something and you'll understand. But there's all kinds of the little obvious, like the, the energy source in this alchemical world is called Cold Fire. And of course, Cold mm-hmm. Fire is a song yeah. of counterparts. And, and there's all kinds of little, little stuff. And um, one of the characters uh, gets glasses with red lenses in them so he can cut down the glare from the snow in the Arctic and, and right. little things like that, that you know what it's going to be, but your, your average reader is not going to see anything significant at all in it. But, but that's kind of my way of thanking Rush for showing how much the music and the lyrics have, have done to inspire me. But it's also, well, it's kind of me demonstrating my street cred that, yeah, I do know what these songs are all about. And I do have the lyrics in my head. <laughs> and, um, 
you know, what's it's not like, oh boy, I, I played uh, moving pictures once. So I'm a rush fan. And, you know, I, I, I know the the deep cuts, <laughs> you know, also uh, many of the concepts that run through Neil's lyrics are also prevalent in the book. You know, the randomness of the universe, free will, extreme order versus extreme freedom, logic versus emotion, that sort of stuff. So I think Rush fans appreciate that as well. Well, and when we were doing that mountain climb, we were, you know, trying to brainstorm like, so I'm, I'm a fiction writer. Okay. So I do all the full detailed characters and themes and all this stuff. And, and Neil's a nonfiction writer and Neil's also a lyricist. And so his view of the anarchist was he's an evil guy and he's the villain. I mean, that was his initial view. And I go, well, that's good enough for a song, but that's not good enough for, for a novel when you really have to get it. So what's driving this guy and what's all, what's he all about? And what are these pools of poison and the scarlet mists and what is, Oh, they'll never forget me. And all what is going through his head? And we started really like going on and on. And we came up with the really cool thing was that extreme order is too confining and strangling and smothering, but extreme freedom is just as dangerous too, because there are people that actually want to have guardrails on the roads. And there are people that actually want to have a schedule for something. And, and so you've got the anarchist who just wants to throw everything out and have everybody do whatever they want, no matter how many people it hurts. And then you got the watchmaker who, and, and Neil was also very insistent that this is kind of a clean and pretty place. It's not an evil Orwellian 1984 dystopia kind of thing. The watchmaker stability, it's not that bad of a place. If, if, you, if you're a round peg and you could fit into these round holes, you're going to have a great time. It's just when you want to do something different that you have to color outside the lines a little bit. But uh, so Owen Hardy is kind of caught between the watchmaker who wants everything perfectly scheduled and the anarchist who say a terrorist who just kind of wants to wreck everything just because it's fun to wreck things. And we just really develop that stuff. And then Francesca, the goddess with wings on her heels, the carnival tightrope walker, gypsy beauty that he falls in love with. And that whole storyline was just one of these perfect things that we came up with. And you know, you're just getting me all nostalgic for this book. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm in this universe right now because I'm editing Clockwork Destiny. But uh, it's uh, of the 170 books that I've written that these are probably closer to my heart. See, you got got one. <laughs> um, it really is. I mean, they're they're some of my very best work because I had to impress my co-author, who was hard to impress. So, how has it been? writing the new novel without, you know, that sounding good. Well, it's still, it's still my, he's like the ghost of Obi-Wan Kenobi there. I mean, he's still there and I wouldn't do this if I didn't think that it was up to the quality of the other ones. And I wouldn't do this if it was just me deciding, Hey, let's squeeze another book out of this, this thing so we can publish one. It's not, these aren't my most successful books financially, I've got lots of other things going on, but these are the ones that I really, really feel closest to. And when we would meet in this last year or two, that we would try to talk a little bit about Clockwork Destiny and what Owen was doing there, or what Marinda Peak was doing that one, and how we would tie the two stories together. And and uh, so it it just felt like like something that I had to do. And you know, we'll we'll go into lots more detail when we do an actual show on it when the book is out. But 
it's done. It's in its final edit and uh, ECW press is going to be publishing it. And I'm just really happy about it. So I'm curious, Kevin, when in the process did you hear the Clockwork Angels album and what were your thoughts when you first heard it? Oh, well, he was sending me the lyrics as he wrote them. And so, but I'm, to me, I don't hear the music in my head. I have to, I mean, I can't just read the lyrics and kind of guess what the song's going to be like. I need the whole, the whole package. And we were plotting, plotting the book. Obviously the Caravan and BU2B had already been released and they were, I mean, so I'd been playing that. And in fact, on the Time Machine tour, they had like video images in the back of Caravan, like this, the steam liners coming in and there's like factories in the background and stuff. And I had some of that going on. And then I, I got some of the rough cuts of the, of the tracks as they were recorded because we were starting to plot the book and trying to remember which, which songs were the last one. He didn't write the songs all in order. There were other ones that, that came in. I think Halo Effect was one of the last ones. In fact, that part of that was inspired by our, our mountain climb because we were we were talking about some of my inept experiences in, in love and romances and our, our mutual friend, Matt Scannell from Vertical Horizon, he had some problems. And so Neil was kind of putting together this, this Halo Effect that after you break up a relationship and it's been long enough, you start thinking maybe it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. And and you kind of put this rose-colored glasses on. And, and that was one of the last ones. But I remember when he sent, the day he finished writing the lyrics for The Garden, he wrote me to say, I think we just did the most beautiful song I've ever written. And, and he just loved that song. And it just seemed like the perfect counterpoint for everything. And so I, I heard some of the cuts, and I heard the, the whole album well before it was, it was out, but they were still tweaking on it, little things here and there, but I, I needed to know it because I was really putting together the novel at that point. And, you know, these, these things take a little time. So just when, just when the album comes out, you can't start writing the book and, and I'm a pretty fast writer. So that was another advantage to it. Oh, and to answer your question though, I'm biased because I'm so connected to it, but it is truly one of my very favorite of all the Rush albums. And uh, just the whole thing together as a package and knowing the story that runs through it and and just the musical quality, Getty's vocal quality, everything just seems like a, um, we want 10 more albums like that, guys, and we'll, we'll just not get them. In the afterword to Clockwork Angels, Kevin, Neil mentioned the quote from, headlong flight. I wish I could live it all again. And he said that he wouldn't live it all again, which I found interesting. Would you, Kevin, live it all again? I would live it all again because there was so much that I enjoyed about it. Although it would be nice if I could be my own conscience over my shoulder to say, that was a really stupid thing to do. Don't do that this time. (laughs) You know, the, the headlong flight in the less lyrical quote from Neil is when he wrote, adventures suck when you're having them. And that's that's kind of what headlong all, all the journeys of the great adventure it didn't always feel that way you know there's so much stuff i don't want to retread it i want to do new things and that's i don't get off on kind of another tangent here i i still just two days ago i i climbed a 11 uh, 11 mile hike up in the sangre de cristo mountains and it was like three thousand foot elevation gain climbing to these high mountain lakes and and i'm 59 
and I work out all the time. Like Neil was constantly bicycling and work, working out and exercising. And I do that because if I get out of shape, then I can't do the things that I want to do in life. And I think it's easier to stay in shape than it is to get in shape. And I don't want to be limited into which mountain lakes that I can hike to because I haven't bothered to exercise and eat right. I don't want to be limited as to where, uh, which mountains I can climb or which marathons I can run because um, I just got lazy and wanted to sit around. So I'm, I'm kind of driven in, see what I did there? I'm kind of driven <laughs> in many ways. And Neil was always driven to, to, to experience things and do things and learn things. And uh, it was just like a great, great example. And I, I do want to I want to talk about Clockwork Lives for a minute because Clockwork Lives is, uh, again, that's the one that Neil said was my finest work. And it's one, one of my, it is my absolute favorite. And the story behind it is this, um, well, it's, it's in the steampunk clockwork universe, but it's a, a woman who um, all she wants is just a quiet, perfect life and never go anywhere and never do anything, just kind of settle down and be calm. She gave up everything, her, the guy she wanted to marry, the job she wanted to have because her father uh, who is an alchemist is like really sick and she has to take care of him. And she gave up everything just to take care of him. And when he finally dies in the last will and testament, he says, at first you will hate me for this and then you'll love me for it. And then he cuts her out of her entire inheritance and only gives her a book, a blank book. It's an alchemical book. It's kind of magic that will, that, that will collect the life stories of people. And she cannot get her inheritance back until she fills this book, the book of Clockwork Lives, until she fills this book with the stories of all these other people that she meets. And so she decides, all right, I'm just going to go and quick fill up this book so I can get back and pick up my inheritance and settle down to my house. And she goes to person after person in this little tiny town where she lives. And she gets the life story by taking a drop of their blood, which spills onto the page, and then it, it tells out their, their life story. And she goes to person after person after person in this town and collects their life story. And everybody's life story only adds up to like three sentences and that's it. And she realizes she has to go farther and wider to find people that actually did something with their lives so that she can fill up this book. And the first line, the, the little epigraph line in the book, Clockwork Lives, is actually something that Matt Scannell and I worked up together and the, the line is, some lives can be summed up in a sentence or two, and other lives are epics. And that's exactly what I want my life to be an epic. I don't want my life to be just like two sentences in somebody's book somewhere. And you've got to do things and learn things and, and, and make a difference in the world. And, and I know I'm sounding kind of schmaltzy and preachy here, but I, I think that if, if you don't push yourself and if you don't do all this extra stuff, then you're not cashing in on everything that life has to offer. And, and I, I want to see and do as much as I can. So one more quote for you, this one from the garden, the line, a measure of a life is a measure of love and respect. What does that line mean to you now, Kevin? Wow. That that's like one of the most important lines ever. I mean, I think that in, in the final tally, if you're lying on your deathbed or whatever, that you, you don't want to look at your bank account. You don't want to look at, at um, you know, how many houses you have or, I mean, this isn't just a, a 
wealth is bad kind of thing, but it's a, the thing that really matters most is how much love and respect that you've earned in your life. How many, how much of a difference have you made in other people's lives? And that, that should be how you are measured up, how much love and respect that you got. And, and that was what Neil, I told you when he wrote the, the lyrics to the garden and he wrote me this email that he's going on and on about this, this is what I really believe. And this is what I really figured out that it's not, you know, how many, um, how many things you have or how many friends you have or how many um, things on your score sheet or your bank account that it's, it's love and respect that matters the most. And it's, you know, it's, it's getting hard for me to even talk about it because it just means so much to me, but that's, and I, I, I feel like I try to do that myself. I really try to mentor people and I try to help out where I can and go the extra mile and, and just lift people up. And I'd, I'd rather give people a compliment on a job well done than bitch about something they did wrong, things like that. And, and it's kind of difficult in the world these days when it's, I mean, social media and everything else, it's the, the measure of, of success people have is how much, um, snark they can throw around and how much trashing they can do. And I just, I just don't go for that. I'd rather, I'd rather be on the more positive sense. Well, Neil certainly had the love and respect of all of us. And I know I speak for all Rush fans when I say we appreciate the work you did with Neil and for Rush fans all over the world. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Rush Fancast. Thanks, man. I really mean, the books really mean a lot to me and Neil meant a lot to me. So I'm and we're all one one giant Rush family. And, and like that guy who's standing there crying with bravado, we all get it. Yep, yep. And we hope you'll come back and talk to us again when Clockwork Destiny comes out. I will. Look forward to it. We do as well. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks. So, Jared, I don't know about you, but I have a new appreciation for the album Clockwork Angels. After listening to the book again, I listened to the audio book that Neil read that Kevin mentioned and talking to Kevin. I mean, I love the album before, but now forget about it. Yeah. I'm surprised too, that I had, I like it even more. It doesn't seem possible. One thing that's interesting though, is that it seems to me that much of clockwork angels was born out of oxygen deprivation from being so high up in the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's true. But uh, what a, what a great conversation with Kevin. He's an amazing writer. And another great friend of Neil's, we've been lucky enough to talk to so many people who knew Neil so well. And I just yeah. feel fortunate to be able to talk to all these people. Yeah. I can't wait to have him back on to read the new book. Hopefully you'll have a voice next time we have Kevin on. So you can talk a little bit more. It's entirely possible that that'll happen. <laughs> Depends on how many concerts I go to between now and then. Yeah. Maybe don't go to a concert the night before we talk to Kevin <laughs> next time. That might be a good idea. Maybe. You can find us on Twitter. We are at RushFanCast. Instagram, we are at the TheRushCast. Email Jerry. Let him know what you thought of our conversation with Kevin J. Anderson. TheRushCast at gmail.com. Lex did the bass intro and outro. The Garden, of course. Follow us on your favorite podcast app. And Jerry, I hope you got a quote for us to wrap this up nicely. I do. And it's from Headlong Flight. Nice. All the highlights of that headlong flight, holding on with all my might to what I felt back then, I wish that I could live it all again. Me too. Take it easy, Jer. See ya.